welcome to Pivot Points. This is the podcast about the pivotal moments that have shaped our academic, professional and personal lives. I'm Femke, your Head of Communications at Wolfson College, and I'm all about creating ways for you to share your stories like this podcast. I was thrilled this month to get another chance to speak with Wolfson alumna Shahazad Akbar, who was the first woman from Afghanistan to study at Oxford. We spoke earlier this year for an interview in Plans and Prospects, and she's since moved back to Oxford over the summer. Shahazad has worked across public and private sectors, all in organisations with a variety of different humanitarian missions, but with one thing in common, which is Afghanistan, her home country. So I started by asking her if that central theme of her work was prevalent even in her earliest academic experiences too. I felt very strongly about um, my education helping me serve in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that became much more pronounced when I, once I was outside Afghanistan. So in 2006, I ended up going to Smith College in Northampton, US, um, Northampton, Massachusetts in the US. And being away from home, every class that I was taking, I was thinking, how does this teach me skills and brings me insights that can help me with being an active member of the community, of the society back home in Afghanistan. So I studied anthropology, but I tried to kind of learn about West while I was there, particularly the US, because of US's very strong presence in Afghanistan. But also the broader region about Islam as, as a very prominent um, you know, factor of our lives in Afghanistan. Um, and so that was always part of my, you know, my thinking. In Smith and then later in Oxford as well when I decided to study development studies I thought that studying this particular in the, this particular department could help me have a critical approach to what was going on in Afghanistan and hopefully be helpful in those conversations about how the country should move forward and how, how we should prioritize how we should tackle poverty so I think staying connected to Afghanistan was very important to me and rather than you know some people have talents, and, and they know that since they're very young, they're good at music or sports. For me, it was never like that. It was more about, so I had to struggle a little bit about what, what do I study when I went to Smith, for instance? Um, and then I thought, maybe this is the way in which I can make myself more useful back home. Um, and so that also impacted my, the decisions that I made about my work and how to, you know, the whole trajectory of my work. It wasn't so much about I want to stay in this one field and become an expert in it. It was more about this is where I think I can be more useful with the skills that I have um, and, and stay more connected. Hmm. And how did you find it culturally when you first moved to the US? I mean, it was a huge shift, of course, because I had been on short trips to the West, uh, to Germany, actually, in fact, only. Um, I had, we had lived in Pakistan as refugees. I had been on short trips to India and Nepal and countries in the region, but had never been to the US. And um, my parents had, of course, never lived in the West as well. So it was, it was a little hard for them to offer me any guidance on what this might look like. I had worked with Americans. Um, I knew American, I had, you know, American journalists who were working in Afghanistan, aid workers, but just arriving in the US and then going to Smith College, it was a, it was a big transition, really big transition, because um, I think I first, I mean, you start noticing the differences, even small differences 
become so big and pronounced, you know, from the differences in architecture. I remember writing home about the fact that the doors were very heavy. <laughs> it's like a minor thing, but to, to food, to the way people interact and the way um, families organize themselves, everything was very different. I had read a, a lot of American literature uh, before I arrived in the U.S., but living inside that uh, culture was certainly uh, disorienting, I would say, initially mm. very disorienting. Mm. Um, this was the first time that you were away from your own family as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I have... Uh, it's um, Now that I'm raising my own children, I noticed this, you know, we, we, we put them in their own bedroom since they're very little, but... The way I was raised in Afghanistan, I mean, you, you are in the same room with your siblings or even your parents till you're much older, you share everything. You know, you, you have a much closer relationship in the family. People stay with their families till they are married. So for me, it was a very big thing that I was, you know, traveling across oceans, going to have completely different time zone, being so far away from my parents and my siblings and my, my family. It was really hard. I missed them every day. I missed Afghanistan every day. And um, it, it, I think I found a community first and foremost in the International, International Students Organization uh, on campus. It, it felt like we share some of our struggles because we are all away from home and, you know, the differences in food and culture, but also issues because I, I felt like me and several of my, my friends in the International Students Organization, uh, because we had come on financial aid or some forms of scholarships and whatnot, the economic concerns were so much more pronounced for us in our daily lives. Like we weren't sure if we could make it back home, if we could get the money to buy a ticket to go back home for summer. Mm. But also we didn't know what to do if we didn't go because we couldn't afford to be in the US for summer. So these things consumed a lot of our you know, brain, mm. which wasn't the case for our American um, 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 classmates and peers for mm. most of them. Mm. Um, but also being exposed to, I mean, I think racism in the U.S., just trying to figure out how, how that, what, what that is and what's the response to that. What was your experience of that? Uh, personally, I think it was, very, it was a very interesting time to be an Afghan in the U.S., right? This was in 2006. I felt like many Americans, very even well-educated Americans, knew very little about what was their country doing in Afghanistan. Um, they also knew very little about what's going on with Afghanistan and Afghan women's situation. There was also not a very kind perception of Muslim women, Muslim people, Muslims in general. So I remember when, uh, you know, shootings would happen in the U.S., unfortunately, uh, this is common. We would always pray that a Muslim is not involved because we, we worried about backlash to ourselves mm. and to the extended Muslim community in, in the U.S. It wasn't a, a very... Post 9-11, it wasn't a very friendly environment. Um, I didn't have many, uh, you know, racist interactions against me, per se. We were in a college community. We were very sheltered, very protected. But I, there, were very, there were strange questions. People that, were, that clearly showed that people had these perceptions about, you know, Afghanistan. They, they found it hard to believe that I had read the literature that I had read, that I had had access to books and, you know, um, my parents really invested on me being well-read, relatively. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, that my father wouldn't... Um, my parents weren't trying to 
marry me off or force me into a marriage or, or things like that. Yeah. There was all of these concerns about if I go back home, my, well, my parents sell me. And I was like, guys, they sent me all the way to the US to study. I don't think so. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. <laughs> there are other things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was all of that, all of those elements going on. And, you know, kind of people misunderstanding what happened in 9-11, if Afghans were directly involved and we always had to say, no, it wasn't. You know, it was actually people from other places, but also it's more complicated than that. So there was that. But also, I think the racism against African-Americans mm-hmm. as well. And the racism that I saw my friends who are black, who are experiencing. And it was just, I really had, I had read about it, but I really hadn't expected it to be so structural. And, and racism is a huge, it's a huge issue in the US, right? You, can, you can't skip it, you can't miss it. And it was just really shocking to me, I think, because you, you think about, developed countries and you mm-hmm. think about what development means i mean they have nice stores great infrastructure electricity <laughs> all the time but so many issues that they were grappling with mm-hmm. homelessness um, racism of course sexism mm-hmm. so i think in that sense you know you do have this coming from a from a very poor country you do have this somewhat rosy misguided especially when you're young of how the West works and what development means. Mm. And then you come into these societies and you live and you realize that everyone is grappling in a way with, with mm. different issues. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good point. And that also reminds you of something else that you mentioned, that your time at Smith's College felt like a kind of uh, introduction and next steps in your feminist education. Yeah. So what were those next steps and what does a feminist education mean to you? I mean, in that sense, Smith was really incredible for me because I... I, I had thought that I knew some things a little bit about feminism. I had read, I, I grew up reading the lives of uh, great women, biographies of women from across the world, because my, my father, my parents were very intentional about us having access to this. But when I came to Smith, there was an effort all the time to integrate this feminist lens into everything we were studying. So if we were, if we were talking about labor, we were definitely talking about women's labor as well, women's unpaid labor. If we were talking about trauma, we were talking about, you know, anything. We were talking about conflict. On the syllabus, there was, there were, there was material written by women, and there was material talking about women's experiences, and that really made a huge difference mm. because there was a conscious attempt in the in college itself to actually, you know to remind us that we don't know the histories of women, we don't know the stories of women, that we underestimate the contribution of women to this planet, and a conscious attempt to undo that to some extent. And of course, there was also discussion about intersectionality, you know, what about women who are slaves? What about women who come from, you know, um, poor working women? And all of that really expanded my understanding of what it means to have a feminist lens. Um, what it means to have a feminist education. It's not just about being in a, in a women's college and kind of talking about feminism as a, as, a, as a political idea. It's about really looking at everything from a completely different lens or from a wider, more expanded lens, looking at the experiences, looking at the issues. And that was really helpful for my future work because when I went back to work in Afghanistan um, and, and I was sitting around the table on these discussions about you know, what will the budget look like? What would, 
you know, curriculum look like. I, I wasn't just thinking about are women being employed to work on this? Is women's expertise being utilized? But also, what's the content of what's being developed and to what extent that reflects the needs and experience mm -hmm. of women? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really grateful for that. But also, I, I met, I think, um, really for the first time, I met powerful women who are our alumni who are leaders in business or politics who would come to Smith and we had we had this day where we would celebrate our alumni and they would come and they would talk about their work and you know how they got to where we they are. But what was for me somewhat revolutionary was they were not just talking about how they succeeded, they were also talking about where they failed and the struggles that they had to balance their work and the demands of society from them as women moments when they felt really torn, moments when they felt really pushed because they had to pick one or the other. Mm. And it was very liberating to hear that it's not just me. Mm. You know, that women are taught, unfortunately, societies teach women to doubt themselves from very early on and that, you know, very strong, very powerful women struggle with this and that the society, the workplace, the family is not set up to support women pursue their ambitions so there's always a struggle it's not just your struggle mm. and I found that really incredibly mm, eye-opening yeah mm. so you went from Smith's College to Oxford yeah. uh, to Wolfson specifically where you're under Hermione Lee's presidency yes um, and I know you've mentioned to me before she was very much a role model to you yes, absolutely. and I also think it's lovely that she gives such a glowing review as well it sounds like such a positive and kind of nurturing relationship that you two yeah. had Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, when I came to Oxford, it was very different than Smith, mm. right? You, you think, okay, English-speaking countries, West, la, la, la. Of course, there are cultural differences that I noticed, but also there are cultural differences in terms of the educational system, I think. And Oxford, in that sense, in terms of the academic side, it was, I struggled much more than I did in, the, in the Smith. I struggled much more. I, I didn't feel like I, I could fit in. So it was harder academically. But... Socially, I had a very rich life. And I think Hermione being here really made a huge difference because I felt, I felt connected, I felt seen, I felt like I was contributing to the college. And I, I, I just had a living, breathing role model, you know, who was, was spending time with us. And uh, I was very intimidated by her, but also really inspired by, inspired by her and just really valued that relationship that we formed, um, mm. it was it was a source of inspiration. It was a source of um, joy, I think, mm. even. Um, because I think here in Oxford, there is, um, I felt more of a distance between the students and the faculty, right? Um, and it's just the setup is completely different. People were very, as I have said before, my supervisor, for instance, was very, very supportive, but... It's just a different setup than with what we had in, in, in Smith. And in a context like that, to have a relationship to, and to be supported by someone like Hermione, who was leading this, this institution, Wilson College, um, it also helped my confidence, my, you know, my sense that I'm, I'm contributing, I, I have a voice that can matter. Hmm. And you mentioned then, in so in 2011 was when you left uh, Oxford and you started working in Afghanistan straight away after you left? 
Yeah, so I had started, I had worked in Afghanistan every year, every summer break, actually, mm. throughout my studies in Smith as well. So every year I was, I was working. Mm. In summer, I went back, I worked, and mm-hmm. I, then, then I returned to my studies. And in 2010, um, I went back, when I went for my summer break, I ended up, and, and for my research, for my thesis, I ended up setting up this consultation, consultancy uh, firm with several other friends who had just graduated from Western universities and had gone back to Kabul and wanted to take the next step in their career. So when I went back in 2011, I was already going to something that we had started to set up. Mm. It was very initial stages. Mm. But then for me, in my mind, that was the end of my journey in, a, in the West, in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. At that time, I felt like, okay, I'm back, and this is my life. This and is also the, beginning the end of, of my... your journey in academia at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And was that, was that something that crossed your mind, really? Was it like, I'm leaving academia, and now I'm going into the, you know, the kind of industry world? Was uh, that something that you felt? Absolutely, because I also, my, my supervisor, for instance, uh, really encouraged me to consider doing a DFL, putting mm-hmm. an application, and several other friends. Partly, not because I was great academically, <laughs> partly because they were so worried for my safety, I think. Mm. The news from Afghanistan coming every day was so bad. There, were, there was an increase in violence this in 2011. There were news of, uh, you know, suicide attacks, targeted killings. And people were like, you're going to get <laughs> killed. Let's just just do an MFL rather than mm. go and get killed. But I had thought about it. I thought about, my father also was telling me, Maybe you want to pursue your education further. Why not? Now that you're there, you know, think about the default. And I, I just, I just felt so restless to be on the ground. I just felt so restless to try to experiment with some of the things that I had learned. I felt I had been away from home for so long. I was worried about feeling being disconnected um, slowly and kind of getting too used to life here. So I, I, I gave it a lot of thought, but I thought, no, this is the time to go. And, and. Basically, as they say, I had the ground running because I went and as soon as I arrived, I already had to work on the startup that we had started up mm. <laughs> and it took a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so this was one of your pivot points, this feeling of for the first time being fully immersed in, in your own country as a young professional woman. How yes. did that feel? It was, you know, it was such a difficult time, but it, I, I remember feeling so proud in a way mm. and also feeling really like I'm where I, I'm meant to be and waking up every morning and thinking this is gonna be a really hard day but I'm where I'm meant to be mm. and that's that's a very special feeling because when I was in Smith when I was in Oxford I did question you know is this where I'm meant to be when everything is going on back home you know am I, should, I be do, should, should I be doing more should I be there you know, I'm not with my parents, with my family. I'm not helping with their financial struggles. I'm not with my siblings. I'm not in my country at a time of great change and upheaval and opportunity. So the feeling that I had was now, you know, this is it. This is the beginning of the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here. I'm trying to contribute. It's really difficult, but I have made my decision and I am where I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and every day was kind of, kind of not having a plan but like building networks thinking about when you know that you're gonna settle somewhere you know and 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 this is it you then the way you do things changes right you're I was constantly trying to kind of build networks build collectives have a vision for five years 10 years 15 years 
And those were things that I didn't have before. So I felt grown up. Mm. And what support did you feel you had or needed when you were there? So I had my family support, which was incredible because there were people who were telling me, "You, why are you trying to do the startup? Mm. You could get a great salary working for the UN, working for any of these organizations with your qualifications. You have just, you have just graduated from Oxford. That's a big deal. You can get any job you wanted. Mm. And here you are trying to make enough money for the organization to pay the rent and pay the salary of your guard and drive. So it was um, many, many people really questioned my choice of joining my friends and doing the startup. And they said, right now you have just graduated. You have college loans to pay, which I did from Smith. And great financial needs. And you are wired on this path. But the support that I had was from my family and also mentors who, who felt like if you think this is this is where you'd grow the most, and this is the your most. Um, although I had been I had been working with different organizations, but this would be sort of my entry to the professional society in a more committed manner. And mm. and in terms of constructing my image for myself as as someone who is independently creating their own space with friends rather than being associated with UN or another organization, not being sure about if I agree with all of their work. Um, so I think that helped that I had my family and my mentors support mm. me in this decision, which wasn't which wasn't the most straightforward decision. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, even at that point, people were telling you you could very easily work for the UN, which yeah. brings me to your third pivot point, because you did eventually work for the UN. Yeah. And how can you talk me through that, that moment and how that came about? So I ended up working for the for the for the Human Rights Commission, mm. Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission, and I think it was a initially like when if you had asked me in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen, even fourteen, maybe I I I didn't have I didn't think about being part of this institution, leading this institution, or or, or working for it because I was at that time I was really focused on trying to expand my knowledge of Afghanistan, um, do work that will allow me to travel, do work that will allow, give me a lot of flexibility that I'm not held by a lot of organization, organizational norms and you know, security norms, etc. Um, but then as I, as I continued to develop my work, um, I realized that the commission as a state institution is so, it, it can do so much. I could see so much potential in this organization. And I, I felt like the potential was not being maximized. And I felt like I had ideas for how to, how to do more with the, with the organization. If I had a good team of colleagues, I thought that I could do more. And mm. I, could, I could make the organization go further. Also, of course, by the time I came to the commission in 2019, I had at this point had worked in private sector, had worked with the government, had also tried to... Um, tried to establish a political movement and failed. So we, we had... We had what been, do you mean you failed? In what way? Uh, well, we started a, a youth movement, a youth political movement, and um, it became really prominent in terms of the attention that it drew from both Afghans and international community. And I was the first elected chairperson for that movement. It was called Afghanistan 1400. Um, and then there were two other chairpersons after me. But slowly, slowly, um, 
it sort of weathered away. It was all voluntarily, and we were a group of young people who were really interested in changing the way politics was done in our country. Um, but with different elections, we really could not agree on how to move forward with the movement. Some of us wanted to engage into politics directly by campaigning for one of the candidates, by, by really getting our hands dirty. And some of us felt like, no, our focus should be on movement building, on expanding our constituencies. And some of us thought we could do both. So these differences in a very volatile political environment meant that people left, slowly people lost interest. And so we failed and, you know, in a, year, a few years into our our work, our activity, um, we were no longer having any impact. We were no longer um, the strong collective that we had been at the beginning. And so having been through that experience and having been through the experience of working in private sector and knowing that I'm really not good at business, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I felt like, okay, this, this, this might be the next step. But it was a big job. I mean, um, leading the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission it was an organization with 400 staff across Afghanistan, mm. 14 offices. It was the biggest job that I had had to that date. Um, I was part of a group of leadership, nine commissioners, men and women, five men and four women, and I was the youngest. And um, and it was one of the and in, in my f in in the field of human rights, that was the kind of in the state sector, that was the highest job, right? Mm. So I also thought about if I do this now, what am I going to do when I'm when I'm older? Mm. <laughs> I seriously thought about it, uh, but also I didn't feel like we had a lot of time, and everything was moving so quickly with the, you know, with the peace process and the likelihood of Taliban's return to power. Mm. Um, so yeah, I ended up taking the job after going through a long process of selection and interviews and, and, and all of that. And, um, and I think it really fully challenged me. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think I'm also interested in how you balance that with your kind of personal and family life yeah. at the time, because I know, I think at the time of the appointment, you had a very young son. Yes. <laughs> how, how was that? How did you balance those? I don't know if I balanced it. Honestly, because <laughs> <laughs> how did you not balance it? <laughs> because I had a two month old when I, um, uh, when I um, was introduced to, as the chair, when a formal introduction happened. And I remember in my formal introduction, I, I, I cried quite a bit. <laughs> um, formal introductory speech. And so I ended up really relying fully on the support of my family um, to take care of my son. And um, most of the time that I would spend with him would be in the evenings or weekends, um, also because of the profile of my job and the targeting of human rights activists at the time. Um, I wouldn't, I would really minimize my public exposure with my child. So basically I would just spend time with him at home. I wouldn't take him to a park. I would ask others to take him to a park or to take him outside uh, so that people don't associate his face with me. Mm. Um, and, and, that must have been hard. It was, yeah, it was a strange life now that I think about it. It, was, mm. it seemed almost normal then, um, but these were very desperate choices that we were making, right? Without knowing when you're living in an environment of fear constantly. Mm. I mean, one of my biggest fears every day was my son being kidnapped like I lived with that fear every day um, because of my work mm. and so I had to I had to limit his exposure with me um, and it was it was hard because I tried to, I, I kept thinking about it's about the quality and it is really about the quality to, to be present with him when I was present 
But of course, I brought all this anxiety and stress with me from work as well. So I tried really to surround him with other caretakers, my mom, you know, other members of family who are who had much more room for joy in their lives so that he can he could see that he could experience that he could see that in people around him. Mm. Because often when I came home, no matter how hard I tried, I would bring a lot of anxiety and a lot of grief with me. Mm. And, and I, I believe children sense that. Mm. Um, so in terms of feeling like it was a balanced life, like it, it didn't feel like a balanced life. I was I was extremely consumed by my work mm-hmm. and 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 even then it felt insufficient because in the two years that I was on that job we lost three colleagues to violence mm-hmm. so when people were losing their lives for the work that we were doing anything that I do could feel would feel insufficient of course and um, so in that sense it was out of balance but it seemed like that was okay because of what was going on um, in the country at that moment in time. Yeah. So just going back to that role as chair, you mentioned you were the youngest person. Yeah. How did you, how did you establish your authority? Yeah, it was really, it was a struggle. That was my first struggle. So when I, one of my first struggles, let's say. <laughs> so because when I, when I got to the job, I quickly realized we have, we are in deep financial trouble. The institution's in deep financial trouble. So I had to start a round of engagement with donors and I had just, I was this new kid in the block, I just arrived to this institution. And so I had to convince them that I could lead this institution. I had to convince my colleagues that I had to lead this institution. And the journey to getting my colleagues support was not a straightforward one. It wasn't like, you know, three months in, they fully believed in my, you know, capacity to lead and then from then on, we were a great team that worked together on everything. It wasn't like that. It was up and down. Because also the outside context and was so volatile. Everyone was feeling a lot of external pressure, a lot of emotional anxiety. And of course, we all brought that to work. And then when things were so tense, people looked at me and thought, why is she should be doing better, yeah? Maybe she's not doing better. So there were moments like that, certainly, that I felt um, that my authorities being questioned because of issues outside my control. But also I didn't I didn't blame people blame people who did that because because under everyone was under so much pressure. I mean, we lost three co- colleagues. Uh, COVID happened. So we had to, people had to work from home. We had the financial challenges which we overcome, thankfully. There was the peace process. Everyone didn't know what kind of Afonso they will be living on in a few months. You know, and and all of those anxieties had impacted how people, what people expected, and, and this feeling of helplessness and wanting more protection, more, wanting more safety, but not having that really. Um, but I think what what helped was that I tried to always remind all of us that we are in it together. That I don't have the answers. You know, I, you guys have the answers. I can help us all make choices. But for instance. I'll give you a, a, a small example. They would come and a colleague would come and tell me, you know, the internet's down today. We don't, we have no idea what's going on in one of the provinces, and there's fighting. Let's say, and I would say, thank you for bringing this to me. What are two or three things that you think we can do about it, and then I can help you make a decision. So moving this from this from this culture of bringing the problems to leadership, I tried to 
encourage my colleagues to come with solutions. All of you have the solutions. It's not just me. I don't have a lot of the solutions. You're an expert in the field that you're at. You're an IT person. You know what, what possibilities exist. You are working in media. You know what, you know what options are there. You have worked with the Attorney General's office for so many years. You know who might be an ally there. Mm -hmm. And kind of going back to their knowledge, to their expertise, which made them feel seen and feel motivated. Mm -hmm. Because they felt like, ah, okay, my job is not just doing things. I, it's also proposing solutions, finding ways forward. We are all in this together. We can all do this together. And it, took, it takes a mental adjustment. It took a while. But it's really, I saw how it's really increased productivity, how it increased um, trust. And what, what leaders are afraid of, I think, sometimes in, in these traditional societies like mine, is saying, I don't know, because they think that makes them weak, make, um, look weak or come across as incompetent. I don't worry about that. I would say, I don't know the solution to this. Do you think we can figure it out together? And in fact, yeah, maybe initially the colleague thought, oh, why doesn't she know she's supposed to know? But by giving them back that, that power, um, they just felt so much more invested in the work that they were doing. This, mm. And then they felt like they solved the problem, which they did. Mm. And that made them feel like, okay, everything is going mad outside, but at least I fixed something. Mm. I, I corrected something or improved something. Yeah. And that really, really, I think, was something that, um, that helped with this authority uh, question. So with improving that relationship of trust. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's very good advice. I'm also really interested in something that you mentioned to me once about this moment where you kind of realized how to responsibly step up and when to responsibly step down. Yeah. So can you talk me through the moment of when you stepped down from your role as chair of the commission? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, following August 15, 2021, I thought about stepping down every day. I was so restless to step down because I felt... By being outside Afghanistan, I have no, no legitimacy to represent an organization that is inside Afghanistan. It's mandated to work inside Afghanistan. I also felt very torn because I wanted to continue to bring light to the situation in Afghanistan. And I was receiving these invitations to speak in these panels. I had these opportunities to talk to the Human Rights Council, other platforms, really important platforms. And I wanted to utilize these opportunities to speak about what's going on in Afghanistan because I knew I had information. But by speaking about these things, while I had colleagues who were still in Afghanistan, I would be putting them at risk. So I worried about this as well. So I was torn. You know, if I don't speak up, if I don't take this opportunity to speak up, then it's a disservice to the human rights situation in Afghanistan. If I do speak up, I might put my colleagues at risk by affiliation. So what do I do? So I was restless. But then... Mentors and friends very patiently, I think, <laughs> very patiently because I, I, I wasn't in the best state of mind as well with my own grief and trauma and anger and heartbreak following what happened in Afghanistan, reminded me that I have a duty of care towards my colleagues that I have to carry out. And that duty of care reminds, requires me to preserve that title for a period of time because that title of chair opens doors in a way that not having that title, I would not be able to access the same resources. And what were these resources? Getting, encouraging countries to take on a few of our colleagues as, as refugees, um, encouraging them to pay salaries to our colleagues because our bank accounts had become inaccessible following the fall of Kabul, encouraging them to continue to think about ways to help the commission and put political pressure on Taliban so the commission is not abolished. 
But I had to put a timeline. I, I told my colleagues, I said, this work could go on for many years. I have to know at one point where I can step down without feeling guilt about stepping down. But if I continue doing this, just attending to duty of care, I will also feel immense guilt because I'm holding this title, but I'm not carrying out my actual mandate, which is work for human rights of all Afghans. So, so there has to be a timeline. So I sort of negotiated a timeline with myself and with my kind of mentors and close friends, something that made sense, and not in terms of time, Something's in terms of, okay, do we have enough resources and structures in place that some of this duty of care can continue after I'm gone? And once, that once those structures were in place, and currently there are colleagues working on trying to get visas and resettlement for, for our colleagues, so once those structures were in place, then I felt comfortable to step away. And of course, the decision was, I mean, my colleagues in the leadership are still unhappy about the decision that I made, but, um, and it wasn't an easy decision, but, but I feel very at ease. Now I feel at e with peace, um, at peace with it. Yeah. Mm. So since then, you've mm. moved back to Oxford mm. and your family has grown a little bit again. Mm -hmm. Um, how has that adjustment been for you coming back here? Since we left um, Kabul on 15th August, I think um, if, we can, if I can speak about, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to speak about good things in a way, good things that have happened to us, but they have. Um, you know, I have, I have a second child, and that's a, it's, that's a blessing, that's something that brought us so much joy. But because of everything that's going on in Afghanistan, I even feel guilty talking about joy, mm. which is strange. But I, I do think one of, one of the good things that happened to us is to be back here, really. It, it's, um, it just, I, I feel a bit more subtle now, and I, a lot of the space in my mind that was consumed with a lot of just logistics of things, that has opened up, mm. and I have more space to think about my work. Mm and how to make our work more impactful for Afghanistan and also to think through and come to, you know, kind of think strategically about the work that we're doing, not just continue doing the same advocacy, but have some space to think strategically. And that's possible here as well, because there is such a community of people here who have taught these issues through in different mm -hmm. contexts. And there's such source of inspiration, but also guidance and information. I mean, already in my conversation with Tim or with Nikita, who is my academic mentor here, I have gotten so much out of those conversations in terms of helping me think more strategically about issues, mm. not, not just day to day. And I think that's something that's this is the perfect place for, because the whole vibe is about reflection and learning and then contributing and uh, my hope here for the next, we'll be here for two years, my hope here is that, first of all, that I can make myself useful somehow to Wilson as well, but also that I will start strengthening a collective, um, a collective of people who think about these issues that I'm connected to and that I can learn from. Mm. And this is a very good place for that. And you're setting up an organization now, aren't you? Yes. Can you absolutely. tell me a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So since, since again, August 15th, there, there has been a lot of questioning about how can human rights work on Afghanistan go on? Can it or not? 
and I have gone back and forth. Initially, I thought, I, I at least don't want to work on Afghanistan. It's too painful. And since I'm outside the country, I have no legitimacy to do this work. And then kept thinking about how being outside and being safe, physically safe at least, is, is, um, is something that so many people who, especially the women who get up every day and protest and this is Taliban every day, they don't have that luxury, and I do. So what can I do with the luxury that I have? And really starting from there and thinking about what's possible, we have been brainstorming a lot. We have now, we have some now, some concrete ideas about what the organization can look like. We have a name, we have, um, we are working on a website, all of that. But the work that we'll be doing, it's, uh, we will be a, a small human rights organization focused on monitoring violations, pursuing accountability, mainly, um, because the justice system in Afghanistan is so ineffective right now. It has to either be international justice mechanisms or victim-centered justice, which is more about narrating the stories of uh, victims and survivors and, and kind of preserving their truth, and movement building or contributing to movement building. So this is an area where I hope I can learn a lot from others in Oxford, um, especially from people who have looked at social movements closely. The idea is that although we have lost the institutions that we had and we have lost the laws that we had and the such future for rights in Afghanistan seems really grim and difficult, this is not a moment of rest or this is not a moment of retreat. This is a moment to build a stronger community, to strengthen our community for rights, both inside and outside the country. And what's the role that we can have as diaspora in that process? Mm. So it sounds like you have a lot to do in the next yes. couple of years. <laughs> I always end up committing to more and more than I, yeah, I can. A, it's a classic problem. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. It's very inspiring okay. to hear what you're working on. Thank and you. And thank Anna. you so much for joining us on Pivot Points. Thank you for this conversation.